Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. I'm here at a very noisy bloom. There's a lot going on. Everyone's getting the uh, preparation work done and there's a fantastic garden here. It's uh, the UCD History of the Irish Diet in Plants, which is a collaboration of the UCD School of Archaeology, the School of Agriculture and Food Science, UCD School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy. It's a garden that combines archaeology, horticulture, agriculture and design and it tells the history of Ireland based on archaeological evidence that looks, uh, so we have a Mesolithic garden looking back 7,000 years, we have a garden dating to the Neolithic and the kind of foods that they grew uh, over 5,000 years ago, we have a garden representing the medieval period and a garden of what we'd call the early modern period, so the industrial kind of age. Um, so it's a fascinating look and um, we're going to find out a little bit more about it now. So I'm here now with Dr Caroline Elliott-Kingston of the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science. And so this is an incredible um, amount of effort and an incredible amount of work to create the garden. Could you explain a little bit about the project? What was the origins of the project and what were you hoping to achieve uh, by creating um, this history of food essentially? Uh, in a garden from? So the concept came from the head of the School of Agriculture and Food Science, Professor Alex Evans, mm. and he came to me one day and he said, uh, would I be interested in creating a garden mm -hmm. to teach people about the food that Irish people eat because we produce such high quality food in Ireland, you know? Yes, yeah. So um, I said yes, <laughs> lightly. <laughs> I might have thought a bit more about it. Um, but it's a fantastic project because it's an educational garden, so we're an educational institution. And personally, I'm, I love outreach, so I'm yes. really interested in, um, in our research going outside the universities, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then I couldn't do it on my own, of course. It's very much a collaborative affair, so I'm in School of Agriculture and Food Science, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and um, I contacted Dr. Mary McClatchy, UCD School of Archaeology, for um, the historical aspect, and then the students, as you know, the Faraday Landscape Architect students in the School of Archaeology. Mm -hmm. And between us all, we formed a team. Yes. So it's a real team effort, and everybody uh -huh. contributed something different. Yes. And my role, I'm a botanist, my degree mm -hmm. is botany, but I'm a lecturer in horticulture and crop physiology, mm -hmm. so that's my area. Mm -hmm. And um, But I was also asked uh, to be project manager. Mm -hmm. So um, I suppose my role was to kind of knit the whole thing together. I suppose my main role was to take a concept and to deliver it at bloom mm -hmm. at a very high quality. So it's very easy to have ideas. It's another thing entirely to actually implement them. Absolutely, absolutely. And with this kind of, I, I imagine, you know, all gardens at bloom are a challenge. They're a difficult thing. Using these kind of archeolo uh, archeological evidence to find plants that we don't necessarily, you can't buy them in a garden centre, for example. Did that pose a particular challenge to this one? Was that something you found difficult as a, a, a botanist, or did you find that an interesting challenge? Um, it was very interesting, mm -hmm. and plants kind of came from everywhere. So mm -hmm. we obviously can't reproduce plants that we that we ate perhaps 8,000 years ago, which are no longer, yes. which perhaps have gone extinct even. Uh -huh. So what we did was we selected from the list of plants 
mm-hmm. plants that we could still get today. Mm-hmm. And it's a mix. We had nursery people uh, growing plants for us. We did a lot of foraging for weeds ourselves at mm-hmm. weekends and we grew them on as best we could. Okay. I grew the emerald wheat and the naked barley, the ancient cereals myself at UCD. Okay. And then the staff in the glass house um, in UCD grew on plants for us too. And then a PhD student out at UCD Lions Farm, he grew all the modern cereals for us. Wow. So there was a lot of people helping. There was yes, a, a, you know, yeah. Some of it was, um, we paid for, but a lot of it of this work was voluntary. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. No, it, it's a terrific achievement. I think the garden is just wonderful. It's such a nice way of getting the information out there yeah. as well. I think seeing this kind of information in a textbook yeah about yes. what people used to eat is one thing, but yeah. being able to see these plants, to feel yeah. them, to smell them, you know, it, it, it's something quite tangible and quite visible. It I think is, it's and people are, in, people are massively interested in their diet and Absolutely. their food today. Yeah. And I suppose the main thing to remember is that like we produce such good food in our mm. today. Our food is mm-hmm. very high quality. Mm. All of our horticultural produce that is grown here mm. are meat and milk products, you know. Mm. We really produce very good quality food so it's nice to show um the modern day produce but mm-hmm. particularly nice to teach people about what we ate in the past Absolutely. so i think one of the nice things as project manager though was also it gave me an opportunity to um everybody was learning we were all mm. learning yeah. um, i was learning a lot about archaeology from Meryl. she was probably learning a lot about plants from us and mm-hmm. um, but the students being undergraduates like it was like a professional work experience for them it's all very well for them to design a a nice garden on paper yes but now that they've actually had to implement it they might think twice about putting in certain features you know that we put in that we all kind of thought these look really nice on paper Uh and but to actually implement them you know there were some a lot of technical challenges yes so i mean the education they got out of themselves is just fantastic oh that's amazing really is you know and just for the final question as well, I suppose we've got a lot of different foodstuffs that out on show here that we don't eat today. I believe you had a chef earlier cooking up some of these things. Is there any particular um, ingredient that we w- that you wish that we still ate today based on tasting some of these plants? Well, to be honest, quite a lot of the plants we forage today we, sh- we could be eating. Yeah. I mean, nettles are delicious. I mm-hmm. mean, I make nettle soup myself. Okay. But uh, cleavers, fat hen, mm-hmm. we kind of stopped even foraging for brambles. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of vetches. Yeah. They can all be eaten. Okay. Now you need to know what you're collecting, of course, in okay. foraging. You can't just go out and forage in case something is poisonous. Sure. But there are um, cookery books, lots of cookery books for foraging, etc. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe the main point I'd like to get across is that if you look at the garden, we've gone from pretty wild to pretty tame. Mm-hmm. And it would be very good if people were a little less, if they were used a lot less pesticides, which actually Irish agriculture and horticulture are quite good at doing. Yes. We really yeah. are reducing that. Mm-hmm. Um, we produce our crops much more cleanly than probably the public think. They think we're slapping stuff everywhere, we're actually not. Uh-huh. But uh, from a commercial point of view, you know, th- it has to be done um, economically in an economically feasible way. But for the domestic grower if I could get any message across I'd say if you're growing food in your own garden please don't 
don't use chemicals first of all if you can yeah. avoid it. Uh, I've never used them myself. But don't tidy up too much. A lot of those weeds mm. not only could be foraged, but they're really important for our wildlife. Yes. Yeah. So if we were to be a little less tidy in our gardens, mm -hmm. not only would we find that we have some unique foods to eat, mm -hmm. but we'd be doing an awful lot for the environment and for wildlife. Yeah. So I think that'll be, you know, we can produce food sustainably. Uh -huh. um, so let that be the message. Um, so I'm here with Dr. Mariel McClatchy from the UCD School of Archaeology. Mariel, how do we know what people ate in the past? What kind of evidence tells us about past diets? Well, uh, this garden is based on what plants, this is at the Bloom UCD garden, and we're looking mm -hmm. at what plant foods people ate in the past. Mm -hmm. And we have very good knowledge about this because of archaeobotany. Mm -hmm. So archaeobotany is a mix of archaeology and mm -hmm. botany. And what we do in archaeological excavations is very often we find the tiny fragmentary remains of plants mm -hmm. during the excavations. These can be things like nutshell and seeds, and sometimes if we're very lucky stems. You might imagine that these would just rot away and they wouldn't survive. Um, mm. But if certain uh, conditions occur on the site, uh, then they can become preserved for hundreds and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So most often in Ireland, uh, they become preserved because they've been charred or burnt. So mm. you might be drying grain over a fire, or you might drop a few bit of nutshell into the fire to use as fuel. Mm. And when it becomes burnt in certain conditions, it can survive. There's very little biologically or chemically will break it down and it can survive in under the ground for thousands of years. Yes, so okay. then archaeologists come along and in excavation, mm -hmm. they dig up the soils. Mm -hmm. And what we find are these little remains of plants. Mm -hmm. uh, we separate them out from the soil. It's a fairly simple process usually uh, mm -hmm. by floating them out. Um, mm -hmm. They put, them, put the soil in a bucket, mm -hmm. put in water and the nice little plant remains, the charred ones will float to the top, they jump out at you. Yes. You extract them, you dry them out. And then there's the very hard part, which is bringing them back to the lab and putting them under the microscope. Yes. That yeah. takes ages. To <laughs> identify all the different species. And to identify them and to work yeah. out. So yeah. it's something that any of us who work in archaeobotany, it takes a lot of experience yeah. uh, to build up that knowledge to try and identify. You're dealing with thousands of different plant species, they can be. Yeah. And even within those thousands of species, usually they're a bit wrecked looking or a bit yeah. fractured yeah. or something like that. So you have to understand all those breakage patterns uh, uh -huh. to try and identify what it is. But then you can work out what it is. Yeah. Um, and it's brilliant. It's something that I've been doing for more than 20 years. And I still get a buzz every single time I see, I'm looking maybe at a Neolithic sample, mm -hmm. the first farmers. And I'm moving everything around under a microscope and suddenly, boom, a little wheat grain comes out. And I still get wow. a buzz every single time I do that. Well, I, I, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think there's one universal thing that we're all interested in. It's what we're eating, you know, and, and trying to find out what somebody was eating 5,000 years ago. Or, in, like in the example of one of the gardens here, in the Mesolithic period, 8,000 years ago, I think it, it is fascinating. And it really is. And, and we see quite a lot of change throughout history from the Mesolithic period right up to today in terms of what people were eating. What were the key drivers of those changes, do you think? Was it partly about what resources were available? Was it partly about a changing climate? Was it fashion? Was it trade? What do you think some of the key things were? It's a mix of everything, really, and that's okay. for every single period. Mm -hmm. So in terms of landscape, it's what's available and what's available locally. Mm -hmm. um, so in Ireland, for example, we have a much smaller flora than in Britain, yeah, who has okay. a much smaller flora than continental Europe. Yes. So we have a smaller flora here. So maybe more limited in some places. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look at the garden here at Bloom, you can see it's incredibly diverse in terms yeah, of plants. It is. Um, so there is the landscape. Um, sometimes they will be on certain types of ground. They will be on grassy kind of ground. We know mm -hmm. that lakes 
were very important for food procurement as well and around rivers mm -hmm. in Mesolithic times. Um, so you're getting some of those wetland species as well. Mm -hmm. So a landscape will certainly play a large part in it. Mm -hmm. We know also, even for those early settlers in Ireland, that they were managing plants. So mm -hmm. they're not farming them, it's not full domestication of the plants, yes. but people tending and managing and protecting them as well. So you okay. can encourage plants in certain ways, in certain niches, in certain habitats, and create them so that you know that when you go back, there's going to be a reliable supply of them. Mm -hmm. And then it's fashions also. So mm -hmm. there's certain things that people eat in certain locations. So yeah. water lilies are a good example of that. Okay. So water lily seeds can be eaten. Um, and yeah. we have really good evidence from a number of archaeological sites um, in Mesolithic Ireland. Okay. Um, one of the nicest deposits I've ever looked at is one from Derra uh, and mm -hmm. County Longford, um, a late Mesolithic deposit. Mm -hmm. And what it's, it appears to be almost a pit, um, a waterlogged pit, um, mm -hmm. full of little uh, uh, water lily seeds, beautiful wow. water lily seeds, perfectly, perfectly preserved as if they'd just been put there. Incredible. And it's part of the process um, of, uh, of, of preparing them for consumption. Mm -hmm. So with water lilies, you can't eat them straight away. What you need to do is you need to steep them in water and then okay. you need to dry them and pound them and do all these different things and eventually create okay. almost a flower with them. And right. then you need to roast them. It's a really long process yes. and the steeping alone takes about two weeks, which uh -huh. is very interesting when we think in terms of how hunter-gatherers are linked to their landscapes. We're thinking of these people who are moving around, mm. but from the plants we start learning about how people know they're investing in places and in yeah. spaces within this. Yeah. What's interesting about the water lilies is we find them in Ireland. You don't see them in Mesolithic Scotland. Okay. Um, and it okay. seems to be suggested that it's perhaps something that could it be a fashion or something a that's cultural an early food avoidance yeah, <laughs> or something yeah, like a, that. A cultural thing. So even yeah. in those times, those very far distant times, when I think sometimes people might have the idea that you just take from the landscape what you can get, uh -huh. we see that people are choosing, perhaps uh -huh. managing some of their foods and their food supplies and resources to some extent. Uh -huh. Then when you're coming into when farming arrives into Ireland, so uh -huh. that's uh, around just um, around 5,700 years ago, maybe a century mm. or so either way within that. Um, that could be, I suppose, what you call a fashion. That's mm. farming, moving slowly, slowly up from around what's modern day Syria and coming through Turkey, yes. eventually coming yeah. up to us in Ireland. Um, and that's something that's sweeping across Europe. Um, yes. And you're seeing that food yeah. fashion for farming and cereals. Um, and what we get up here is we get the early wheats, which we have in the garden here, the Neolithic mm -hmm. garden here, emmer wheat and naked barley also. Mm -hmm. So they're food fashions. Um, and then it's, I suppose, uh, opportunities as well. So our third garden is a medieval garden. So mm -hmm. we picked that one because we wanted to show when trade was really booming. So of yeah. course you have trade, plenty of trade before that. Um, mm -hmm. And you have movement of crops and animals before that. I mean, the first yeah. farmers, none of those are native plants. They're yes. all moving up here. In the Bronze Age, you have new crops coming in. So mm -hmm. again, that's new things coming in. Early medieval period, you have plenty of trade there as well. Mm -hmm. But we thought in the medieval period, 13th, 14th century, it really steps up a gear. Yes, and you okay. start getting things like figs and almonds and these fantastic exotics wow. coming in as well. Yeah. And that again is fashions, I yeah. suppose, within that of what people, the expression is food and an identity and yes. telling people about who you are and what you are through yeah. what you're eating and what is yeah. available to you to eat also. It's that old adage, you are what you eat. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, within degree. this. And it is yeah. that thing about identity. And even we have that nowadays mm -hmm. in terms of what we eat and also what we avoid. Yep. And yeah, I think absolutely. in modern days, and um, with people sometimes with food avoidance, is very much a display about personality within that. Mm -hmm. And we have certain types of avoidance maybe in the past. Um, mm -hmm. So in a new research paper, which I had published recently, we were looking at why cereals, for example. So they come into Ireland mm -hmm. just after 6,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. and plenty of evidence for them for the first few centuries and then they just are very difficult to detect in the archaeological record yeah. and we're still trying to work out is it because farming became less popular 
-hmm. or maybe the foods, the cereals are being prepared in a way that's more difficult to detect for us okay. as archaeologists. Uh -huh. But in the new paper, we were putting forward the idea that perhaps it's food avoidance even, that okay. it seems that it's something that's inappropriate on some level to eat. Um, okay. So it's that choice Probably, and yeah. what we're choosing not to eat as well. Very interesting. And finally, Mariel, um, you know, we, we know there's a chef here cooking up some of the, the food from the past. Is there anything from the gardens or any food from the past that we don't eat today that you wish we did, mm. that you particularly like? One of the ones which I love finding, because um, it's a pretty little seed, um, is called Chenopodium album. It's fat hen. Okay. Um, so fat hen will be known to many gardeners uh, uh -huh. listening. Uh, it's a, w a terrible weed. I think it's in the list of the world worth 75 weeds. Right. Quite a list to be on. <laughs> um, and what it is, it's it's one that jumps in on disturbed ground. It loves the edge of the garden. Uh -huh. um, I uh -huh. think it's quite an attractive plant. Others mightn't as well. Mm -hmm. um, but what this is, is something that we find again and again in the mm. archaeological record. Um, we often find it, it tends to char quite well. It tends to survive quite well easy enough to identify as well which helps okay. um, and what it is it's a multifunctional plant that we just don't use anymore okay. so we know with fat and the leaves um, could be mm. used like spinach um, so you could eat them raw or you could wilt them or steam them or do something like that uh -huh. and right up to the 18th century in Dublin mm -hmm. um, hawkers on the streets of Dublin were selling fat hen before spinach oh and then when you okay. get other plants like that so that's what we're seeing in the garden and what we're trying to show at the bloom garden yes. is how we have these domesticated plants like spinach mm. which is replacing a lot of those leafy greens that yes. people used to collect earlier yeah. so fat hen from that i think is fascinating mm -hmm. and what's also fun with fat hen is the little seed mm -hmm. so the latin name for fat hen is chenopodium album and mm -hmm. very closely related because it's chenopodium to chenopodium quinoa which is a South oh, American crop okay. yeah. which is quinoa yeah. um, so again this is a seed that can be used you can roast it with a lot of these kinds of seeds you can roast it and then crush it up and then you could add it to bread and um, there's other things you could do it's yeah. pretty nutritious seed okay. so maybe that's a conversation we're quite keen to get going at bloom is we've lost perhaps an engagement of foraging for plants of adding them in for flavor or for nutrition or something like that and maybe bringing some of those back in our diet because they're so freely available in the irish landscape absolutely mm. um, so I'm here now with uh, Niamh Conlon and John McCord, and they're from the UCD School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy, and you put a lot of work into this. What was your experience like with designing a garden for Bloom? How did you find the process? Yeah, well, I thought it, it was very interesting, and because we're, we're doing landscape architecture, it was very sort of in our field, which, you know, that was, was nice, but it was very far removed from what we have been doing, so it's very theoretical what we do in college. Yes. And then coming to do something real life, coming up like topography all sort of them sort of things we had to take into consideration which we obviously wouldn't have done on paper so kind of yeah that, that's really interesting and like i suppose you know designing any garden is, is challenging but you're designing one based on archaeological evidence i suppose how did you find that need was it really restrictive or like did you find it quite a difficult process yeah it was very difficult um i suppose when we had to go out and forage for the plants um, wow. most of the plants from the earlier um, eras um, it was very difficult as opposed to just going and purchasing them in a garden centre or a nursery we actually had to go and for physically forage for them ourselves. Wow and um, what, what did you uh, get the information for where you might be able to find some of these species is that uh, a, well, a process in itself doing that research? Um, yeah well we were collaborating with um, Muriel McClatchy mm -hmm. um, in the from the Department of um, Archaeology in UCD sure. so she was very helpful in guiding us through the plants for each different era in our garden. That, and because you did so many different eras, do, uh, do either of you have like, a particular favourite part of it? Or what do you think? I, I really like the first one. I think the first the one's Mesolithic. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, I suppose because it's so far back, there's little we know. And even yeah. working with the other 
archaeological illustrations it's sort of it's all very theoretical and based it is based on evidence but mm. no one really knows you know yeah but then fa using all the pil pollen records and, and whatever else Mary used mm -hmm. to show that we ate this and we ate that and mm -hmm. things which you wouldn't consider eating today what we do now because we have a chef in cooking them for us but other than that I wouldn't eat them nowadays you know <laughs> yeah, it's not normal you think and how about you Neve did you have a particular favourite um, yeah I suppose the very first section because it was just it was so interesting to, to learn about um, like plants we wouldn't we eat we mm. ate back then mm -hmm. um, and yeah it was just it was just interesting to gain that knowledge and do you think that, you know, looking at these kind of different foods that have come from the past, and you, you've had the chance to try out uh, uh, some of it, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah. Um, is there anything that you kind of particularly like that you wish we were still eating today? Or do you think it's a good thing that these things are kept in the past? <laughs> no, the nets, we, today we had our chef in, mm -hmm. and the nettles were quite tasty, like surprisingly tasty. So Yeah, I think it's obviously a lot of these are weeds, and are, are they're always going to be considered class four weeds mm. because of, you know nutrient deficiencies and all whatever causes mm. them um so that has to be taken into consider consideration we can't obviously systematically mm -hmm. cultivate them but i do think as a nation or as a, as a people we've forgotten how to utilize all the native weeds in that i think yeah. it's important to to educate the general public on that okay. you know and the fact that they thousand years ago like yeah you know that's i think it's very interesting oh it is indeed and i think you've done a terrific job so thanks really fascinating thank you I'm here now with uh, Ronan Swan and Michael Stanley, Transport Infrastructure Island archaeologists. Uh, how did Transport Infrastructure Island become involved in this project? Uh, earlier in the year, uh, Mario uh, called me up one day and uh, just said, uh, "Would we be interested in becoming part of the becoming part of their Bloom project?" Mm -hmm. And uh, that was sort of a slightly unusual request to get. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, it's very unusual request to get. So I said, "Naturally, yes." what do you want? How can we help? And uh, uh, Meryl said that she was putting together a garden with the UCD uh, Agriculture, um, School of Agriculture, and they were going to uh, do it around the history of the Irish diet. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they wanted to do was they wanted to present a garden that would be evidence-based, mm -hmm. a garden that would actually uh, bring out um, the history of how Irish people, uh, the history of Irish people and their relationship with food over the past couple of thousand years mm -hmm. since the Mesolithic and uh, Mario felt that um, with our involvement with our work we've done mm -hmm. on the na uh, natural road schemes and other transport projects over the years that we'd be a very good uh, point of introduction. Absolutely and uh, Michael I, I suppose there's been so many uh, you know transport infrastructure island these large infrastructure projects has revealed so much about our past archaeology is an integral part of the preparation works and mm -hmm. advanced mm -hmm. of course um, how did the information gathered during those projects inform this particular garden here at Blue? Uh, well, I suppose Muriel and many other of our colleagues in, in involved in environmental archaeology mm -hmm. have uh, been sort of constant partners in, in mm -hmm. the last 10, ten years or more mm -hmm. uh, in TII projects. So uh, a lot of the work we do is is heavily informed by, by archaeological science and we're mm -hmm. constantly trying to improve that. We're constantly trying to improve... Uh, the value for money aspect of, of, of archaeological commissioning works so yeah. basically when we're seeing we try to make sure that pilot environmental work is conducted in all of our excavations mm -hmm. but we also seek to ensure that we're getting the best value for money we're getting the best information so mm -hmm. we're not just doing it for its own sake we're, we're ta asking targeted questions uh -huh. we're trying to make sure that the material that we analyze is the most worthwhile material to analyze that's going to be the most productive 
give us uh, answers to questions, give us appropriate scientific dating, for instance. Um, so a lot of this work is then feed, fed into the, the technical reports of excavations, uh, and a lot of the, the plants that you'll see on display as part of the, the different sections of the garden, these are all evidence-based. We, we have hard, hard archaeological uh, science-based uh, information that, that tells us that this is this, these are the tools that were, were uh, used as a resource, either they were, they were farmed or they were planted or they mm -hmm. were collected by hunter-gatherers. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's very much evidence-based uh, um, science that we're talking about here. So it's not, it's not just plants the ones that we the felt the <coughs> plants exactly yeah, 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 Th these yeah, are plants that yeah. we know we have, we have very firm evidence that these existed uh -huh. and we know they existed at specific points in time yeah. uh, and and would have varied the, the proportions of, of the use of these plants would have varied over time again yes. that's that's borne out by the archaeological evidence yeah and it, and it tells a really interesting story and i think what's fascinating about this and, and tii have this great record of getting the publications out there mm. of what we've found and Audiobooks, of course, audiobooks, as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, this is a new way of, of getting the message out there. What, what kind of struck you about this approach? Uh, well, I loved the notion of this isn't for archaeologists alone. Uh -huh. This isn't uh, like often we have uh, books that are published, mm -hmm. and what we desire and we hope that we can engage and excite the general public, mm -hmm. we're not always sure whether we do. Yeah. So, here um, with, the, with this Bloom Garden, the fact that we've got all this information and we're able to make this available and we're able to present it in a new way, we're able to bring um, a lot of information to the public mm -hmm. in a way that just won't necessarily have been seen before yeah. and also as we're able to bring it um, in a completely different venue. So yes. people coming in here, mm -hmm. uh, unlike if you go to a heritage lecture, mm -hmm. you expect to hear about heritage, yeah. you expect to be experiencing uh, that heritage <laughs> project, whether it's yeah. archaeology or so on coming around to Bloom Gardens, you're not necessarily expecting it. Yes, so you're going to yeah. be actually engaging with it in a new and a fresh way. Yeah. And I think what really attracted me to this is, is um, we had these wonderful um, reconstruction drawings, uh -huh. which were done uh, as part of projects, as mm -hmm. part of numerous projects mm -hmm. over the past uh, 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, like today we've got one from um, the Mesolithic one is from the M3 mm -hmm. in County Meath. We've got one from the Neolithic in County Cork. Mm -hmm. We've got one from... Um, all from Neolithic, all from the um, Meath, um, mm. the medieval period, from County Cork, uh -huh. and the uh, postmodern, or sorry, the early modern period uh, mm -hmm. from uh, County Galway. So yes. we've actually uh, got a representation from across the country from yeah. different projects. Mm -hmm. And those drawings were all put together between the artists and the archaeologists working mm -hmm. in concert, working mm -hmm. together, trying to identify what is going on, and yes. also trying to understand. So when people come in here and they look at these drawings for the first time, mm -hmm. They're seeing them in a in the, a landscape context, which in my which I've never seen before. So yes. it's particularly exciting for me. Yeah, yeah. But it, it also reflects uh, a process of people uh, exchanging different information, yeah. exchanging, uh, having conversations, having dialogue about how best to understand. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that those drawings, or um, as archaeologists, we look at an excavation report, mm -hmm. that is a piece of re uh, the record. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a um, the results of the site. Mm -hmm. um, these drawings are also an interpretation of, of those sites. Absolutely. And then yeah. the actual gardens themselves are another interpretation. And almost uh, you can almost look at this garden as visualization. Yes. Um, yeah. It's not. Uh, it, this is something where people can sort of explore uh, how people would have interacted and engaged with one another in the past. Yes. And yeah. it's quite different. And I think that's what really kind of attracted me to getting involved here yeah. because it wasn't just um, 
doing something the same as I've done before. The show's no. trying to do something a little bit different. And looking for those new opportunities to uh, to engage with people. Absolutely. It's just a, another really exciting way of telling the story mm. oh yeah. of all this. So, Michael, it, it, it's one thing seeing this information, seeing the kind of plant species and so on in a book, seeing the actual plants themselves. Um, what impression does that give you? Uh, well, I, th I think one thing is that landscape changes is one thing that comes to mind very yeah. much. So if you start from the Mesolithic, you probably see a very closed landscape where you see a landscape that's very difficult to, tra to traverse because it, yes. it, it hadn't been altered by, by, by human action uh, mm -hmm. to any great extent, you know, mm -hmm. beyond the making of a few pathways uh, mm -hmm. by foot, you know. So, and then as you move through the garden, uh, through time, uh, what you find is, is the landscape opening up. You find the landscape becoming more managed. Yeah. You see the, the, the types of plants represented changing. You see certain plants dropping off from the record and other plants coming in. Yeah. Uh, and you know e even things just like the, like the lawn elements to some of the later mm. uh, the later gardens that just aren't evident yes. in, in yeah. the earlier prehistoric period because the landscape just wasn't as open. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think that's I think that's very it's a very good visual representation yeah. of the kind of changes that archaeology can track through time yes. uh, that I suppose people are, uh, are definitely trying to key in to at the moment and understand in terms of uh, climate change uh, regardless of how that happened yeah. but, but what, we be, what we're, we're, we're very keenly aware of as archaeologists is the nature by which the, the landscape changes the, the yeah. environment changes, the climate changes uh, often, often by human intervention, often by the changes of just one or two degrees, uh, yes. it can, yeah. can draw massive changes in the landscape that we see before. And so yeah. I think I think this is a very good way uh, for the public to kind of key into that notion, yes. uh, and to have to have the sort of the, the environmental archaeologists involved in the project who 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 deal with this at, at, a, at, the, at the smallest microscopic mm -hmm. level yeah. and you, you're going from the smallest things with the, you're basically you're exploding that in terms of a knowledge uh, uh, creation in terms of the, you're going from the smallest seed up to a whole landscape reconstruction Absolutely. Uh, so I think I think that's very good in terms of the public yeah. understanding of archaeology as well yeah. just to yeah. see the, the work that archaeologists do and yeah. that it does inform real things real life things in yeah. here and now yeah. as much as informing our knowledge of the past Absolutely. Um, so Ronan, the, there's some fantastic reconstruction images here, yep. uh, absolutely stunning. And again, it gives you another real tangible visual element of what life might have been like in the past. Can you tell us about the process of creating those images? Who, 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 what artists were involved? Okay, in? well, How does it certainly work? though, we've got uh, we've got four artists uh, on display for the archaeological um, uh, pieces. So mm -hmm. we've got uh, JG O'Donoghue, mm -hmm. who's uh, an artist who uh, took the uh, Cowanstown. Uh, fish baskets ah, yes. and uh, you'll be familiar with fish baskets there mm -hmm. in the National Museum yeah. and you can you can see them there preserved. JJ Dunhu uh, is the artist who did the uh, uh, Clownstown, um, um, interpretation of Clownstown and, uh, that's and when he's doing that uh, work he actually went and he spoke to Graham Warren and a number of other archaeologists mm -hmm. and he went through the excavation reports mm -hmm. uh, which you all know are available online mm -hmm. and he was able to build up a picture and actually try to understand how that object would have worked in the past yes yeah. so like an interesting thing about uh, JG's um, reconstruction is that the uh, figure is actually wearing a pair of uh, um, breeches made mm. from uh, uh, seal skin and salmon skin what? you know it's yeah, not okay. actually planned it's a it's an unusual way now we don't yeah let's have evidence yeah. but it was a, a certain level of interpretation yeah. and so I'm sort of saying well if people have resources and have a, a material available to them yeah why not? Why yeah. not? You know, yeah. and uh, I think that's that's part of it. But it definitely speaks to engagement between the artist and the archaeology. Uh -huh. uh, we then move on to Dan Pooch Tyler, mm. and Dan's taken a, an approach, and um, 
Hopefully Dan's going to be at um, uh, Bloom over the next couple of days. But uh, Dan's taking the approach of actually looking at it from a sort of a bird's eye view. Uh -huh. So his two um, uh, reconstructions, one's from uh, Town Parks on, mm -hmm. on County Meath, and the other one is from Avila in County Galway. Mm -hmm. And both of those are looking at a landscape in mm -hmm. a broader setting. Yeah. And they're actually uh, sort of, so that you're seeing the actual houses, you're seeing the fields, yeah. you're seeing the farms. You know, with the Town Parks image, you're also getting a sense of the forest encroaching around it. Yes, yes. Whereas yes. when you look at the Neville image, uh, which is the, the um, one from the early modern period, mm -hmm. it's a much more um, it's a much more uh, open landscape. Mm -hmm. So you're getting two s two different senses there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Michael Duffy's uh, image, which mm -hmm. is of the medieval period, that's of a, a slightly more intimate scale. It's of a farmstead, and you're able to see the people at work in between their uh, house and mm -hmm. the buyer, yeah. and you can see the fields just be immediately behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think that it kind of captures that that sense mm -hmm. of um, a lived-in past. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I think that's one thing when we're looking at reconstruction uh, drawings, when we're even looking at any kind of reconstructions we do, yeah. is to get that sense of people engaging with the past. That the that's past it. isn't just a sterile, um, you know, clean yes. entity. Yes. It's a place where people live. They had their own histories. They had their own stories. Yes. And uh, we should be we should be recognising that and yeah. they had their own experiences. Yeah. And we can sort of touch touch them in certain ways, and the art the art actually comes in. Yeah. I'd also give uh, my comment about the final image there. That yeah. was done by uh, uh, John, the landscape designer. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, looking at a fishmonger mm -hmm. uh, in a, uh, uh, you know, uh, today it could be down in the English market down in Cork. Yeah. Uh, and it's a fantastic image because it actually shows the intimacy that yeah. we have with food. Yeah. So that, um, and I, I really like that, that image because it resonates with uh, JG's image at the start. Yes. So we're looking at yeah. uh, a person. 7,000 years ago mm -hmm. and we're looking at a person who could be there last week and fishmonger there last week yeah, and yeah. The, sort of the similarity of feelings that are, and emotions that are there yeah. and I really think that's an interesting way that you're just getting a sense and it just shows you how these images can be um, uh, shows you presented and also shows how the information that we collect as archaeologists can be uh, given out and given back to people yeah no I think it's fascinating and I think this is a it's a brilliant example of, of you know, a, a really innovative way of telling the story mm. of the past. And I think, again, it reinforces one of the key things in archaeology, that a collaborative approach with loads Absolutely. of different experts and specialities coming together it is often just a best result. Yeah. So that's everything from Amplify Archaeology this week. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. You can find more information in the show notes on abartaheritage.ie. And that's where we'll put all the links to the particular information. And we hope to have this out in time for Bloom. So if you get the opportunity, do stop by the gardens. They really are terrific. Take a look. I'll catch you next time.